My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Hello, my friends and listeners. This is your host, Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. As I often state here, if you've been listening to this for a while, thanks for showing up again. If you're a first-time listener, I'm so glad you found us. As I mentioned on episode 52, I have effectively passed the mark of producing and publishing this podcast for two years now, and I'm looking forward to getting as many years as I can squeeze out of it. But of course, I've unfortunately cornered myself into an unusual category, a theater history podcast. I'm not a true crime podcast or a celebrity telling it like it is podcast. I'm just a fan of theater history and helping people enjoy a great story, which I plan to keep on doing. And I want to thank you again for your continued patronage. I mean, why not? It's free to you. But, oh my gosh, I would love if you would share this with some people. Uh, Show people how to access it in whatever podcast format, you know, the app that they would prefer. But yeah, I would just love to see our audience get a little bit bigger. So please, feel free to reach out and uh, show somebody uh, what you're enjoying. Now, speaking of patrons, I want to give some mention to new listeners. In the States... I want to return the favor and recognize my new listeners in New York, Tennessee, and Georgia, where I've seen a pretty good upswing in downloads. And outside the States, Europe seems to be liking this show. And I want to say hi to my audience in Portugal. Good to have you with us. And if you haven't listened to episode 49 on the play Fuente of Una, I would suggest that. Your history is tied to that play. Oh, and I want to recognize the homeland of my ancestors, Sweden. I would love to visit your country someday. From what I've seen, the performing arts are like tremendously important to Swedish culture. There's a lot of like government assistance with it. And I, I, I so appreciate that. I would love to visit someday. But to my listeners in the UK, where I'm seeing a good number of new downloads, I got a treat for you. Today, my guest is one of your own. A great actor with a resume that any actor would aspire to. My friend John Dryden Taylor. Regular listeners will remember John from episode 7, The Quarrel of Lysid, and episode 19, Rebecca the Musical. In just a moment, I share some good news with John about that Rebecca episode. But for this episode, John was able to fit me into his very busy schedule. If you're in the UK, you may have seen John this last year at the Curve Theatre in Leicester. He was in productions of Billy Elliot and The Wizard of Oz, and he's having a fantastic comeback after those two dark, ugly years thanks to that nasty little COVID thing. But nonetheless, John was able to fit me in for this episode in which we discussed two outstanding and somewhat lurid figures from British theater history, Henry Irving and Ellen Terry. And without further ado, let's get right to it. But yeah, um, I went back and listened to our uh, episodes we'd done before. Uh, you know, I had you on for uh, the Quarrel of Lacide and uh, the fascinating, fascinating uh, nonsense that went on in <laughs> the French Renaissance. <laughs> That's right. And I, I have to tell you, you have a special place on our show in that the episode we recorded on Rebecca the Musical is the most downloaded episode I have to date. Oh, wow. So obviously a very popular topic, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I hadn't heard anything, as I said, uh, about the 
about the whole story behind it. Um, and it just seemed like such a fascinating story the way the way you told it to me. So I I went online and looked at some people telling it less well. Uh, people, if you've not heard the story of Rebecca the Musical, listen to our episode. Don't go to YouTube. Um, but yeah, what a story! And I think they're trying to, I think they're trying to resurrect it as well. I think there are still efforts in place to. Uh, oh God, I hope so. Back on. God, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, just listening to it, and 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 I mean, what a powerhouse! Like for female performers in particular. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. In the interest of time, John, uh, you've told me you uh, got to get to some things. And so I'm so grateful that you were able to come on the show again today. Oh, I've been looking forward to it. I got another juicy one here. And the thing is, um, as I started to look this one up, I'm realizing this is uh, about significant British theater history. And you might be able to tell me a thing or two about it. Oh, here we more go. Than I was able to find. It's going to look bad if I can't, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know about that. So uh, the way I will start this, and I usually start with a question, and I haven't told you anything that we're going to be talking about, right? Not a thing. So the question I will ask is, do you know what the word psychomachia means? Now, the the very sort of keen and eager student who always worked hard at school in me wants to say yes of course i do but I <laughs> but yeah if you had a guess psycho you said psychomagia mm-hmm. well psycho means relating to relating to the psyche or to the internal life somehow there so we go it's okay. some kind of some kind of some kind of machia coming from the brain <laughs> the issue is well, it's some kind of machia, obviously. It's some, it's some kind of machia happening in the brain. There you go. Do I get an A? <laughs> uh, well, you're, you're close. You're close. Um, so, Psycho Machia, the Latin epic poem from the year 400 CE, describes a battlefield of supernatural figures fighting to see which side would win, good or evil. That's the title of the poem, Psycho Machia. Today means it is a battle internally. For good and evil. Nice. So like a Thursday then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Do I get the onion bagel or the everything? <laughs> <laughs> so how this applies to theater. While stark criticism of basically the entire art of theater has been present since its inception, one very particular period where it reared its head again was during the Victorian era in England. A.K.A. the century that ruined everything for everyone. Go on. <laughs> Are you having fun? No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so from a cool scholarly book I found by Jonas Barish titled The Anti-Theatrical Prejudice, here's a quote about how the practice of theater was viewed in the 19th century. Quote, The artistic conscience, struggling against the grossness of the physical stage, striving to free itself from the despotism of the actors, resembles the spirit warring against the flesh, the soul wrestling with the body or the virtues launching their assault on the vices, end quote. Okay, so I heard the despotism of the actors and forget everything I said about the 19th century. Take me there straight away. (laughs) If, the, if this is the place where, where the actors are despotically in charge, then I want a bit of that. Oh, I don't know that you do. Uh, we're we're going to get to something here in a little bit that, that might make you change your mind again. I don't know. You might be flip-flopping <laughs> a bunch on this episode. Um, now, while it can probably be imagined, given the term psychomachia, those of us who have studied theater history before knows that quite a bit of this anti-theatrical sentiment came from the church. Of course. This wouldn't be the first time, and it certainly won't be the last. <laughs> Which is so funny to me, because when you think about the origins of Western theater, they were centered around religious practice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But but probably in a way that the church wouldn't massively have liked. Because like if, you're, if, if you've got people doing mystery plays on the back of a car, that's going to be more interesting than, than what's going on in church in Latin and with a guy in the big robe. Right. And uh, they probably made the church services look a little bit a little bit dry and dull. So I, I bet I bet the church were in the 13th century were saying, "Oh no, we we can't have all this mystery play going. It's make, it's making us look far too boring. We're standing there in in Latin. 
<laughs> we're standing there and just reading from a book. Yeah, these people, these people are acting it out while we're intoning things. Right, and and most of the people who are watching the shows uh, don't speak the language that we are doing. Yeah. So, uh, here's a great quote from right about this time that we're talking about, Victorian England. It's an excerpt from Testimonies for the Church, written by Ellen G. White, who is uh, the co-founder of the American Seventh-day Adventist Church, which... Wow. Yeah, yeah. Really sums up the aversion to theater from most churches at the time. It's kind of a long one, but boy, I just, I love this quote. Among the most dangerous resorts for pleasure is the theater. There, okay, coming out swinging. Hey. <laughs> Instead of being a school of morality and virtue, which it is, as is so often claimed, it is the very hotbed of immorality. Why, you ask? Okay. Vicious habits and sinful propensities are strengthened and confirmed by these entertainments. Low songs, lewd gestures, expressions and attitudes deprave the imagination and debase the morals. Every youth who habitually attends such exhibitions will be corrupted in principle. There is no influence in our land more powerful to poison the imagination, to destroy <laughs> religious impressions, and to blunt the relish for the tranquil pleasures and sober realities of life than theatrical amusements. The love for these scenes increases with every indulgence as the desire for intoxicating drinks strengthens with its use. The only safe course is to shun the theater, <laughs> the circus, and every other questionable place of amusement. End quote. Yeah, you kind of want to take her to, like, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what, Ellen? You know what, Ellen? You were right, and it's great. <laughs> People are having a blast. Uh, have you ever heard of La Cage aux Four? Uh, <laughs> but, but that's the um, that's the pure Victorian voice, isn't it? It's basically um, these people are enjoying themselves, and anything that people enjoy is probably sin. Right. That's the that's the whole that's the whole idea that that if if, if you're doing anything with a smile on your face mm -hmm. rather than a sort of doer grimace, then mm -hmm. that's somehow somehow an insult to God. Well, and and the funny thing is, I you know, there's obviously a way to corroborate that <laughs> because you know <laughs> we obviously can tell which souls went to hell and which souls went to heaven after they died. Absolutely, we just need to look at the hell census to see you know if Ibsen's there, and there you go, ding ding. <laughs> oh man! So yeah, okay, we've got the church saying that, but if it wasn't bad enough that theater and actors in particular were catching hell from the church. Even their own fellow artists were attacking actors at the time. No. Yes, art versus theater. And you're going to, this, I love this. Okay. In Victorian times, this all seemed to center around Edmund Keane, a famous British actor in the first half of the 19th century. And he'd be, God, he'd be a fascinating character to deep dive on a future episode. But yeah, here's how he plays into today's story. By a lot of reports, audiences didn't just like him, they were thrilled by him, and he apparently really let that go to his head. <laughs> uh, no, sorry, we have to stop that. I won't believe it. An actor developing an ego? No! This never happens. No! <laughs> never. They're not, they're not here to hear Shakespeare. They're here to hear Shakespeare in my mouth. <laughs> That's so dirty. Okay, um... Uh, Edmund Keane died in 1833, but his son Charles carried on his legacy and apparently also his ego. <laughs> hmm, hmm. It's your family birthright. It's the first Nepo baby there in the, uh, <laughs> in the British theatre. Yeah, the very first. Disdain for his style of what some would call overacting came from a lot of important voices in and adjacent to theatre. Now, this list, like, I, I, I'm going to hear your jaw hit the floor a couple times. Names such as Lord Byron, Konstantin Stanislavski, and Giuseppe Verdi, George Bernard Shaw. <laughs> All of these guys were like, no to acting. <laughs> More appropriately, no to that style of acting. Yeah. Although, I, I, I don't know, I'm a bit of an opera nut, and I've been to a lot of Verdi operas where the singers seem to be going, no to acting! <laughs> Yes. Now I know they were just they were just following the maestro's wishes. What can I say? <laughs> so if there could be a consensus among these naysayers of the Keens and actors like the Keens, it would be that 
I think their point was they were simply making theater about their performances rather than the total theatrical ensemble, you know, the actual art. Sure. So they were making it all about them. Okay, I can see their point. And while the lead performances are often the most memorable part of a production, some of the writers of these works started to wonder if the actors had forgotten who had given them such great works in the first place. Ah, uh, here we go. <laughs> Here we go. And I can definitely hear that from Shaw. I can definitely hear that from Shaw. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, particularly with those incredible sort of intricate intellectual arguments that, that Shaw wrote. You can see him sitting in the audience going, I gave him this. He looks brilliant because of me. Yes. <laughs> and he's forgotten. <laughs> he's forgotten that that really clever idea that just came out of his mouth. I sat down in front of my typewriter in my little house in Buckinghamshire and typed that out. Yep. I could see Lord Byron doing the same thing. Verity, yeah. you know, Verity, like he, he was so great at adapting prior yeah. works. So, I, I mean, I get it. I get this movement. However, there's one I, I don't quite understand. There were even movements for closet theater. And I've spoken about it on the show before. Theater that should be something only that would be read on an individual level like a novel as the imagination of the individual can create a better picture rather than trying to produce the same effect to a group of people. I mean, write a novel. If Just you want, write a if novel! You, if, you, if, you, if, you want, if you want to write a novel, mate, write a novel. No one's Just stopping me. you. No, no, it's a new kind of theatre where you don't watch it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, funny that, it's funny that opera keeps coming up because there's a certain type of very, very rarefied opera lover who says that, you know, the highest form of the art is to sit at home and listen to a recording. Because there you're, you're, you're not being distracted by all these horrible sets and costumes from what the composer intended. You're just hearing the music. Right, and right. Like, and the response to that is always, yeah, the, the composer wrote it for the stage, though, didn't they? <laughs> they, didn't <know> that <laughs> they didn't know, they either didn't know that records were going to exist if it was before the 1900s, or they knew records existed and still oh. wrote a stage work. No, no, no. They all went, can you imagine what this is going to sound like in the parlor of Peter Harris? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's, 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 the highest, it's the highest form of main character syndrome. This, <laughs> this, play, this play would be better if I was just reading it myself in my house. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why they've hired all these people to do it. I could do the voices in my head. <laughs> exactly. So, to summarize, to be an actor in Victorian England was considered an activity that puts the actor's soul at hazard and definitely could not be seen or considered a profession by any means. And there's a couple of funny things to think about when considering this. Most of the criticized actors were well known for their Shakespearean revivals rather than their newer works. So... <laughs> So the people who were complaining, um, their their works weren't being done as frequently as Shakespeare, from what uh, I could yeah, yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. from what from all I can tell by my research, while this may have affected some levels of theater attendance, people were still going and frequently. Bingo. <laughs> well, that's that, that's that's the other endless reactionary voice, isn't it? Oh, um, right. This, yeah. This thing that people like is terrible. And all the people go, I need that thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. But this is where we get to one of the heroes of today's story. And somebody that, like I said, he's, this this is more about British theater history. So you might be able to correct me on some things <laughs> in my research. Yeah. One of our heroes today is a famed British actor, Henry Irving. Way. Yeah. Okay. For the purposes of what we're discussing today, I'll tell you why I'm bringing him up. We've long known about British actors being knighted in service to the crown for their profession. Shortlist includes Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, Emma Thompson, Patrick Stewart, Julie Andrews, Alec Guinness, Helen Mirren, Michael Caine, just to name a few, all with the title of sir or dame based on binary gender titles. But it was Henry Irving who has the distinction of being the first actor knighted in service to the crown in the profession of an actor. I didn't know that. Yeah. Isn't that something? Yeah. But given the atmosphere I've already described, and when he was knighted in 1893, can you imagine what kind of a stir that caused at the time? Oh, my God. It's like, it's like 
it's a TikTok influencer, isn't it? That's the yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that's oh. oh God, my kids are my kids are that generation, and and they know all of these like YouTubers' names and everything. And I, I mean, you have it in like trivial pursuit categories where it's like famous influencers. And here are my mother and I trying to play with them. And we're like, yeah, we're out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and it, it, it's, it's precisely that thing, isn't it? Of uh, I don't think that this is a proper way to earn a living. And therefore this person getting an honor for doing it is, is just a disgrace. As late as 93, though, I mean, I thought theater had, had, had received a certain respectability by then. Well, I can assure you that it was well earned. <laughs> so i'll give you just a brief bio and resume for irving and i think you might agree that the knighthood was a no-brainer <laughs> and then we'll get into why uh, people thought uh, otherwise so born in 1838 with the name john broadrib b-r-o-d-r-i-b-b yeah change that name for theater yeah nice work yeah. Henry Irving was just a stage name he assumed later in respect to his mother's Methodist upbringing. And I couldn't find why that was particularly Methodist, but apparently it was. Little Johnny fell in love with the stage at an early age. It can't be known exactly when the acting bug bit him, but it did early. His teenage and early adult years were marked with acting lessons, fencing lessons, because a lot of the plays back then required swordplay, swimming in the Thames to improve his physique for the stage, and just taking about any role he could to keep working for his craft. His first role at the age of 18. I grew up a mile from the Thames, and I knew as a kid that I was going to be an actor, and I never thought to jump in it. I never <laughs> thought, oh, no, hang on. I need, if I'm going to be an actor, I need to improve my physique. I, let me just, <laughs> ne never mind going to school, get the uniform off and get in the Thames. <laughs> You've got to build that physique up so you can do <laughs> the things required for theatre. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have a lot of those brave cavalier shows anymore where, you know, uh, uh, I think in uh, the Spanish Renaissance, they call them capa y espada, the cape and spade or cape, uh, sword and cape. But yeah, yeah, that was that was still kind of the rage back then. OK, so Irving had a goal for theater that was honestly far away from the ego of the Keens, who seemed to solely be in the art for themselves. But from his first years in theater and pretty much through the rest of his career, Irving had this goal in mind. He felt that the theater could bring a lot of help to society, and he wanted theater to be just as respected as other performing arts, such as symphony or ballet. Because those ones you could go to and listen and watch, and it wasn't really all that dirty or naughty or immoral, but the stuff you have to do on stage, like, you know... <laughs> I was thinking about it the other day, you know, these naysayers would be like, well, they have to bring themselves to the point where they, they may have to do damage to other people. And I'm like, listen, Gertrude, uh, yeah. Polonius isn't really being killed behind the heiress. It's, it's all for show. And, and <laughs> Hamlet did not, you know, I, I know some actors who would have done this, but he does not actually bring himself to murderous intent. He's just doing what the play says. <laughs> but people still like, people still like to pretend that they don't mm -hmm. know that distinction. I remember yeah. when uh, Meryl Streep criticised the 45th president for mocking a disabled reporter. I oh, remember, yeah. I, I remember people saying, "Oh, well, she was happy to play Thatcher, wasn't she?" And she had dementia. And it's like, no, no, you see, <laughs> nope. that, that's different. That's that's very much a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> and if you if you if you don't know the difference between those two things, you're either pretending or you're so stupid that, and either way, there's no reason to bother with you. <laughs> That's where you can just go and click. I'm not hearing from you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so for Henry Irving, for, uh, from his first role in 1856 to his breakout role on the in the West End in 1871, that we'll get into in a moment, his career was much like many actors, full of near poverty, rejection, but enough resolve to continually hone his craft as well as maintain a physique to do it. Irving stayed true to this goal of heightening theater in the eyes of the public. His determination ended him ended up getting him the lead role at the Lyceum Theater in London's West End as the Burgomaster in a play called The Bells. Ah, I've heard of The Bells. Yes, yeah. And this, this was really fun for me because I got to look up a bunch of uh, terms that sound really funny. And I finally figured out that a Burgomaster is basically like a town mayor. Yeah, like a mayor. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that. Ah, <laughs> uh, you see, you, you don't always have German in school, do you? No, 
No, we don't. No, we don't. Yeah, I did. I did German at school over here, and that's that somehow stayed. Uh, the Lyceum Theatre, by the way, for the last twenty plus years, the home of the Lion King. That's what's there now. Oh wow! Of course it is. Of course it is. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So, just a brief review of what acting looked like at the time. For those of you who are paying attention in your timeline, we're just starting to get away from kind of the bombastic acting technique of the Romantic period, and we're getting ready to lean into realism without, you know, declaring declaring it's actually a thing yet. And by this time, Stanislavski, who we talked about earlier, had not yet actually begun his style of acting, which demanded a lot more realism on stage. But by 1871, when Irving was in the Bells, this style of truth in the moment hadn't really been seen on stage too much before. Mm. We can kind of, we can think back to that. I mean, it's still really well done in opera. Like you were saying, you know, these big, yeah, yeah. big hearty movements. And I mean, every gesture has some sort of grand sweeping meaning. Um, but, you know, and, when, and, you know, just playing to the back of the house is still something that we need to be able to do. Like right. I had a, in my, in my forties, the first time I worked at the Olivier in London, which, you know, is a, it's only a thousand seater, but it's a massive great barn of a place. Yeah. And even then I was, I was sort of learning techniques about whereby somebody says something that surprises you. You can't do it with a look. Yeah. You know, you've got, you've got, you've got to do a little step or a little hand movement or something that registers surprise at the very back of the very back of the auditorium. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You can't have a wink. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you can have a wink, but it's going to be a little bit exaggerated. But exactly. Uh, but that's that's how acting was before realism came into it. You know, it was it, it was very much I have written a letter and your hand yeah. shakes and rises to the sky and the thunderous applause. Yeah. So when Irving showed his audience a man going through true pain as though what was happening on stage might actually be happening to him, the audience was somewhat dumbstruck. It was said that on opening night. At the end of the performance, the audience sat quiet for several moments before erupting into applause. They simply didn't know how to respond to what they'd just seen. But once the applause started, it didn't stop for several minutes. Critics declared Irving the best new actor out there, and the Bells ran for 151 performances, which is quite an outstanding run for that time. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm fascinated by that. <laughs> they were just like, "What did what just happened?" <laughs> and how many people who subsequently worked with Irving were sitting mm-hmm. there thinking, "Is he going to go on about the bells again?" I get it; it was a success. I understand, <laughs> but honestly, we cannot we cannot get through a single rehearsal without him saying, "Oh, when I was in the bells." <laughs> well, remember, he's not one of the Keens. He's doing it for the good of the theater. True enough. (laughs) Soon after the bells, his Hamlet added that element of realism that he became famous for. And people started to look not only at Hamlet in a new light, but all of Shakespeare. And revivals of Shakespeare's plays would become a specialty of Irving's and a frequent offering. In 1878... Irving took over the lease of the Lyceum Theater, where he had been in the company since appearing in the Bells in 1871. And by doing so, he also therefore became, uh, uh, like, ran the artistic and executive direction of the Lyceum, a position he would hold for the better part of the next 30 years. And it's the same building that is downtown with the Lion King right now. (laughs) It sure is. Under his direction, the Lyceum was the guidepost for British theater. While electric lights were starting to become more popular, Irving insisted that his theater and thus his productions would be lit by gaslight as he was a lot more comfortable with the medium. And his direction was often known for its incredible staging and very notably being recognized for his direction of crowd scenes, which I look back on that. And if you just look in theater history textbooks, the big directors of of the early years of the role of the director they all talk about crowd scenes for some reason which <laughs> I, I just i can't fathom so, like a couple people sitting there in the in the crowds and easily folding their arms and going yeah that's that's some good crowd work right there <laughs> well although i guess it it's because the idea of individual one-on-one direction is is relatively modern isn't it so mm-hmm. Uh, so a 19th century director is mainly directing traffic. They're, yeah. they're, they're, they're not sitting down with the actors around a table and asking questions and doing all that post-Stanislavski stuff. They're literally saying, you stand there and then you move there. 
So I uh, yeah. guess okay. like a, a really a really well marshaled crowd scene probably was a, a cool thing to see. And you go, well, that's definitely directing. I can tell there's been a director directing. That. <laughs> They're not just standing there and kind of bumping into yeah. each other. They have a they yeah. have a purpose for everything that they are doing, and I believe that. <laughs> Which, by the way, um, that, that that's a really funny thing that. Uh, there are a few myths out there. Uh, John, you and I are actors. And one of the things that I love when I get done with the show and uh, somebody who has seen it talks to me and they say, oh, man, I really love the play. And you say, thank you. Thank you. One of the first things I hear all the time, John, is how did you memorize all those lines? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I go, oh, sweetie, there's so much more to it than that. There is yeah. actually a purpose to all of the things that we are doing. <laughs> you don't just have a guy go, sit down there. Well, why am I sitting down? I don't know. Just do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and also, it, it, it's a really weird one about, about individual expertise as well, because you know, people don't go, how do you sell all those houses? Or, you know, <laughs> how do you... How, how do you fill out all those spreadsheets? You know, every job has something repetitive that you have to do uh, that, you know, becomes part of your muscle memory and part of your technique. It's just for, for us, it's it's mainly remembering a lot of words or remembering 90 percent of the words and making up the other 10, which is what most often. Uh, my God, how do you balance a till at the end of your shift? Yeah. <laughs> well, I know in all my years of retail, I never managed that. So that is. <laughs> there is some talent. <laughs> Okay, so it was shortly after Irving took over the Lyceum that he employed actor Ellen Terry into his race. Yeah, another big famous name. And I've been to I've been to Ellen Terry's house. Whoa. Um, and the uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a visitable sort of tourist. Oh wow. And, yeah. uh, and what I can remember, and this is so beautiful, and I hope I'm not I hope I'm not doing a spoiler for something you're going to mention later on. Hmm. But the the bedside table next to the bed that she died in. Um, has has glass over it to mm -hmm. preserve the fact that as she was dying with her finger she wrote happy in the dust oh isn't that gorgeous that is gorgeous um <laughs> i'm glad you brought that up because no i'm not going to get into that later um but <laughs> it, it, i i might tarnish that symbol a little bit oh no <laughs> And, you know, you bring it up as, as a tourist attraction. I kicked myself about this so many times. John, I worked in Seattle and lived in Seattle for a number of years. I never went to Kurt Cobain's house. Uh, well, I mean, presumably, presumably it's still there. It is. It is. There's a bench out, th out there, I guess. You can just sit and, and look at the house, which is weird. You can do a day. It's like Space Needle in the morning, Kurt Cobain house in the afternoon, fish market <laughs> at night. It's all there. It's all still there. <laughs> Exactly. We'll go back someday. Okay. So for those of you who aren't familiar with Henry Irving and Ellen Terry, I kind of think of them and their partnership for several years as like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Would you make that same assessment, John? Yeah. Yeah. George Clooney and Catherine Zeta-Jones. There Harrison you go. Ford yeah. and Carrie, Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher. I love it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay. Just, just a great chemistry and you could put them together in a number of different plays. I mean, the perfect, the, the two were absolutely perfect for each other on stage for all the pathos that Irving could demand with his performance. Terry would be able to match him. And, and, and this is not surprising really, as Ellen Terry was born into a family of performers and started appearing in plays before she was an adolescent. I mean, basically, her entire life was spent on the stage, and the experience showed. I have something in common with Ellen Terry. Oh, really? The The first time I ever appeared on a stage was as Mamilius in The Winter's Tale when I was seven years old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and she she started in that part as well. That was her, that was her breakout role. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, her first part, anyway. But back to Irving. After running the Lyceum for 17 years, Queen Victoria knighted Irving in 1895. I said it was 1893 earlier, it's 1895. London was simply outraged, <laughs> but it apparently has been something that has been able to be overlooked. As the short list of actors I mentioned earlier seems to suggest that there has been a shift in societal opinion towards mm -hmm. the acting profession. Do you know what the shift is? This is this is so funny. Oh, bring it on. The, the shift is from people going, oh, why would the royals elevate that little actor to... Oh, why is that actor legitimizing the royals by accepting a knighthood? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. You can have a title, <laughs> I guess. Uh... 
Man, oh man, friends and listeners, how about this Henry Irving, huh? And now you've just been introduced to Ellen Terry, two of the most prolific actors in British theater history. But as heroic as I've made them seem up to this point, I will provide some information later that will, if nothing more, give you a better idea of who these heroes might have been. But before we get there, and while you're listening, feel free to rate the podcast wherever you're listening or even drop a review. That really does actually help grow the show. You can also look up Trident Theater at tridenttheater.com. Remember, I spell theater, T-H-E-A-T-R-E. And I've already heard from some of you out there. Thank you, Amanda, for the suggestions on my sources page. Or you can find Euripides Humanities on Instagram, follow me, DM, whatever. And now, on with the show. Okay, so, I mean, we've we've been talking about this. Henry Irving, you know, had this goal of making theater something that would be acceptable. And while it wasn't necessarily acceptable, he at least got the ball rolling. He became somebody who could be knighted, given royal title, which, you know, take it as it is, but (laughs) that's what it is. However, John, you've been on this show before. I'm wondering if you have any curiosity towards why things are going so swimmingly up to this point. Because everything's going to go to absolute disaster now. Surely we're (laughs) going to be... we're going to be the meme of the of the dog surrounded by flames saying this is fine within within five minutes. I will say that I'm not completely suggesting that the events I'm about to unfold were further justification for societal disdain. Oh, God. But I just want to bring up a few things that may have cast Irving and Terry in not so spectacular of a light. Here we go. I've not mentioned much about their personal lives. No, you haven't. As we all know. The personal lives of any celebrity seem to paint how society feels about them, regardless of the work they do in service of the crown. Ain't that the truth. So let's go back to opening night of the Bells in 1871. I hadn't mentioned that Henry Irving was married. Irving wed Florence O'Callaghan in 1869, and by 1871, the couple already had two sons. So I do that math. Yeah. I don't want to suggest a shotgun marriage based on a pregnancy. But math is math. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, and even if it was all above board, the poor woman got married, got pregnant, had a baby, got pregnant straight away, whatever happened. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. And she's married to this actor. And she's married to an actor. How's she going (laughs) to feed the kids? (laughs) But let's talk about that opening night. Even though she married Henry, Florence was always critical about his prospects as an actor, and not just because of his talent, but because how how because of how he would be seen in society being an actor. She was just utterly appalled by the concept of acting as a profession and consistently tried to find ways for Irving to find new means of income. But by that time, he was of a certain age where it's like he can't really start anything new and that's how kind of you know it's it's not like today where somebody can be like well i've done this accounting thing for a while i think i'm gonna go into my own private practice or something like that it's also exactly like today in the (laughs) you know there's an actor's spouse going are you sure about the acting thing (laughs) it would be nice to go on holiday from time to time oh yeah there is that have a meal at a restaurant. Maybe maybe you could think about becoming a lawyer. I don't know if it's... <laughs> and that, is, that is very much an, an actor's spouse classic line. Yeah. <laughs> she still attended his plays, though, and was in attendance for his opening night of the Bells, which won him such fame and critical acclaim. After the opening performance... The couple was on the way home in a carriage. And this is after he'd he'd already been, you know, his hands had been shaken and he'd he'd gotten all this uh, acclaim from people all around him. So they're sitting in the, you know, they're in the car on the way home. Yeah. When Irving asked his bride what she thought of the performance, she quickly snapped back. Are you going to go on making a fool of yourself like this for all your life? Oh. At the next stop, Irving got out of the coach and informed Florence that he'd never be home again. And he didn't. (laughs) Oh, man. He found an apartment close to the Lyceum, but he never stepped foot in his marital home again. That is such a who is the villain story. (laughs) Because I I, I could give you an argument for both of them being garbage people in that story. I know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, no, acting is more important to me than you and these two children I've sired. Ta-ta. <laughs> but also, 
Also, I mean, Florence, read the coach, you know? <laughs> he's just, he. this this is today, like, you're writing home with Brendan Fraser, who has just gotten another <laughs> award for playing in The Whale and going, well, that was a little silly, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're standing there at press night with your glass of free wine. <laughs> As everyone's saying, this is going to run for a year. And I'm just saying, oh, darling, you look like a dick up there. <laughs> oh, God. Not the best way to keep a marriage alive, really. No, no. Although, no. you know, it could be argued that, you know, Henry overreacted a, a, a little bit. A, a, a bit, yeah. <laughs> Not, you know, maybe we'll talk about this later. I'm, I'm kind of team Henry, though. Don't say that to me on my press night in my ca- in my carriage. Yeah, right. His children grew up barely knowing their father but did gain a relationship with him once they were older. Throughout their lives, they referred to him as the antique. Oh, boy. And both sons, however, took up acting as a career. Of course they did. (laughs) (laughs) But what does daddy do? And one of them actually became a successful playwright. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And although they were separated, Henry always wrote to Florence, inviting her to each of his opening nights. And she often attended, although it was often noted that she would be sulking in her box seat. Okay, okay. This is a this is a highly successful marriage with a load of role play going on. I refuse to believe. <laughs> I refuse to believe there's anything other than than that happening. Otherwise, you say to him on the first night of his greatest success, you look like an idiot. He says, I'm never seeing you again. But you can mm-hmm. still come and you can still come to my shows. And she goes, Well, I will do, but I'll sulk. I mean, that, there's some kind of intense role play happening here. I, I refuse to accept anything else. Oh, man, it's almost tantric in a way. <laughs> <laughs> and they never divorced. Well, there you go. There's my theory proved. Okay, there you go. Uh, as for Ellen Terry, the onstage magic that she shared with Irving did develop into offstage magic as well, air quotes. And while no one can 100% confirm this, the two were often perceived as lovers. And as they spent just about every waking hour together on or off stage after Irving split from Florence. I, oh man, I can't remember where I, I did find it somewhere. There was some kind of quote from one of the two of them that when, when they were asked, were you lovers? One of them said something like, oh yeah, we loved each other just absolutely madly. Never saying, yeah, we 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 were in bed a lot together. <laughs> but it was basically like everybody, air quotes, knew that they did, you know? I mean, so, sometimes you just have to get it out of the way, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> this is obviously, you know, this is obviously a thing. We're going to spend all this time together. That'll probably lead to, you know, uh-huh. a bit of the other happening. So. Let's just get that done in a clear-headed way. Then we can get on. Then we can get on with the work. We can stop wondering what it would be like. And just... <laughs> exactly right. We can, <laughs> we can get on with rehearsal if we've done this bit of admin. <laughs> oh, Ellen Terry eventually moved on to other theater projects and moved away from the Lyceum. But it's still never really known if they were romantically imp- in- intimate, and no children ever came from their company. At least none that we know of. But that's not to say that Ellen Terry didn't have a reputation for coupling. Here we go. Terry married in 1864 at the age of 16 to visual artist George Frederick Watts. He was 46. Okay, so what I'm getting from that is the patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, I mean, if you... If you go and Google her, Ellen Terry was quite a striking woman. Like, uh, oh, she, yeah, she was beautiful. Uh, and and Watts commissioned her to uh, sit in for a portrait for him one day. And I don't know. Apparently, that portrait just stuck in his mind. So the relationship, though, was quite explosive. And Terry fled the relationship within a year. Within a year, she's sixteen and married to this. Yeah. This. Uh, she soon found herself in a couple different new relationships. One was as a company member in Charles Keene's acting company, where she gained quite a reputation for playing Shakespeare's heroines. And this is a reputation she kept in her years with Irving as well, as the two often played the male and female leads together in Shakespeare's works. Like, I think she was Desdemona to 
Irving's Othello and she was Beatrice to Irving's Benedict. And I was going to say, I, I, I think of them when I think of the two of them together, I think of much ado. I don't know why. I think that's just a, yeah, yeah, in my head. And, and there's a great uh, painting of her as Lady M. Like uh, uh, somebody saw her performance, and he's like, "I just, uh, I just want you to get in that costume, and 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 I want to paint you in that." And the costume, oh God, John, it's all kind of pre-Raphaelite with long, dangling green sleeves, isn't it? Yes, and you know something that was really crazy about that costume? It was put together with thousands of tiny beetle wings, iridescent beetle wings, so that it would shimmer in the in the gaslight. Ellen Terry's Drag Race. That is that is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh god and today we just have sequins and we're like well we could just make them and <laughs> yeah. there was somebody a hundred years ago who went no get me more beetles that's brilliant uh-huh the other relationship that terry found herself in was with architect and designer edward godwin with whom she would subsequently have two illegitimate children as she did not divorce watts until 1877 good screw watts don't care about watts he shouldn't be marrying 16 year olds yeah uh the relationship with Godwin did not last, and Terry gained quite a well-earned reputation for being involved in a number of romantic affairs over her lifetime, almost as talked about in social circles as her incredible talent on the stage. You're not saying that an exceptionally talented woman was spoken about more in terms of her sex life than her talent. I won't hear it, Aaron. I can't believe it. <laughs> Such a thing never happened. But who is she dating? <laughs> but despite all that, Henry Irving and Ellen Terry allowed the profession of the actor to be seen in new light, so much so that one of them best was bestowed a knighthood, although it could be argued that it er they earned it in tandem. Really. I mean, mm. if it was a thing that people would consider, they probably would have said, yes, give her the title as well. That's my opinion. Was, was she never danged? No. That's so interesting. No. Actually, well, I maybe she was. Uh, uh, Googlers, go. I, I, I beseech you. And then write to me on my social media. So yeah, there we go. But I do have one epilogue before we finish. One of the illegitimate children that Ellen Terry had with Edward Godwin. Theater historians, you'll know this name. Edward Gordon Craig. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. He was, he was a, a, a designer and a director and yep. like theater practitioner type, wasn't he? Right. Yeah. And also there's um there's a there's a theater that I've never been in. Um but the train north from London goes through a small town called Stevenage and it's one of the few theaters it's a very ugly theater 70s theater but one of the few theaters you can see from a train in the UK is the Gordon Craig Theater in Stevenage which is named for him. There you go. And and rightfully so cuz I mean from a very young age young Craig attended rehearsal with his mother quite often so he, I mean he lived and breathed theater all his life. As an adult, as you were saying, Edward Gordon Craig became one of the most influential thinkers and theater makers in the early 20th century. He's most well known for his article and his book on the art of the theater, which somewhat directly and indirectly inspired much of the expressionist movement of the early 20th century. This work championed the idea of the director as the master artist in the theater, and the actor was what he called the uber marionette, a puppet to be manipulated in the manner of the director's choosing. Edward Gordon Craig invented meat puppets. There you go. Uh, and he was just incredibly influential on design ideas to the early 20th century theater movements as well. Okay. All that aside, Craig married in 1893 and he and his wife sired five children. But similar to his mother, Craig gained a very well-earned reputation for adultery. In 1905, Craig met uh, violinist Elena Mayo, who he would then have three more children with. And actually, all in all, Craig eventually sired 13 children with eight different women, including famed actor Isadora Duncan. Good Lord, he had a child with Isadora Duncan. Yes, he did. Ah, and that's, uh, that's the story of Henry Irving and Ellen Terry. And I didn't even get into how Bram Stoker was part of Irving's company at the Lyceum Theater and used Irving as somewhat direct inspiration for his most famous character, Dracula. I'll leave you to look that up on your own. I did know that. I'm very smug to have known that. Or you didn't get into um, Ellen Terry's great nephew either. No, no. Sir, Sir John Gielgud. Yep, yep. Another one of those theatre families. Yep, yep. And, uh, you know, Gielgud is another one of those who has this outstanding stage reputation and mm, very somewhat lurid uh, private life. Well, um, you know the, you know the, I mean, there's so many good Gielgud stories, but my favourite is that um, 
he was uh, he was advised allegedly by Alec Guinness. I don't know if that's true. Um, that if ever he were to find himself in trouble with the police for any kind of uh, what was then illegal activity, he should give a false name. Oh, and being unable to think on his feet when he was uh, when he was arrested uh, for for um, gross indecency, he said, "Arthur Gielgud," <laughs> which even better than anything else is his actual government name. The <laughs> Arthur <laughs> 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 was was, was, was his better. So yeah. Um, Gilgood, uh, so oh. many stories. Maybe we can do another episode on him at some point. Oh my God! Yes, because I, yeah. I worked with Gilgood. I met Gilgood when I was eleven. Oh wow! So that's the that's the, the the passage through. There you go. Your link all through this. Oh, what a brilliant story! I I I didn't I I knew about Irving and 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 Ellen Terry, but I mean, where's the where's Ryan Murphy? Right? Where's the miniseries? <laughs> Right, I mean that's a that's definitely a good little limited series on the early, well, not even early years of the Lyceum, just the Irving years. Yeah, that would be fascinating. The whole, That'd be yeah, fascinating. The, the the whole Henry Florence marriage to start with, because I still can't get my head around all of that. Yeah, um, yeah. There's there, there's so many brilliant stories. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much. I'm <laughs> I, I'm going to do exactly what I did after our last episode. I'm going to fall down a Google hole now. Well, I mean, and there was so much detail I had to leave out. And and yeah, I'm kind of glossing over a lot of things and I might be making some broad generalizations. But uh, here's the thing. At the end of the day, you have this guy who's devoting himself to his craft and trying to elevate it to a more respected status while he is doing some things in his own personal life that are questionable and uh, the person who he is on stage with the most or quite often, and when they're on stage, they are dynamite together. This woman has just this crazy backstory. I mean, yeah, uh, there's so many issues that you could talk about with this today where it's like, do the personal lives of the actors actually affect how we look at them? You know, can you separate the art from the artist? And I, I, I just don't know that it's that simple. But but you can't deny that the gift they gave to theater was amazing. And whatever the chaos that went on in her life, in the last moment of it, she decided to write happy in the dust. Oh, there you go. I didn't I didn't swing you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, There's always more to our heroes than we might want to know, but man, you can't deny what those two did for British theater. I want to thank my guest, John Dryden Taylor, for his contribution to this episode. And British theater aficionados, if you happen to be in the London area, it sounds like chances are good that you'll see him on stage again pretty soon. I would highly recommend it. He is simply a phenomenal actor and a true friend. In any case, thank you for listening to another episode of Euripides Amenities. I've got some great guests lined out already for 2023 and some pretty tantalizing topics to discuss. But for now, I'm signing off. This has been Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. I'll get another episode out to you in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. Ooh.